Gentlemen, I don't know if it's me or not, but they seemed a lot more efficient getting up this stage and getting off of it than we do on Mother's Day. I know what's going on with that. They may have sounded better than us too, I don't know. This has been a great day, amen. It's been a good Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all of our fathers, thankful for all of you. Um, and I hope that uh, today is an enjoyable day for you. I uh, hope it's a special one. And if you're missing a dad today or a granddad today, um, I, I hope that, uh, that you will find joy in the Lord in the midst of that missing. Remember uh, the special times, the times of learning, um, the, the times that, uh, that you built a monument in your heart from the times that you spent with your dad and you left it there and you said, I'll come back to this one day. Today's a day to come back to it. And if today's a day where you go, man, I really don't have a good relationship with my earthly father, never did, um, it's a day to rejoice in the fact that your heavenly father is perfect. And we'll see that even in this passage this morning. So Luke 20 is where we're at. Throughout Luke's gospel, we have seen Jesus be interrogated by a host of religious people who have bad intentions, right? Uh, they always are trying to catch him in some question, some sort of ethical or theological uh, quandary they are trying to trap him in. Nothing changes as we get to this point in Luke's gospel where Jesus has driven the money changers out of the temple. Uh, he has uh, stopped the parade of cattle that was coming through the temple, and then he starts to teach. And it seems uh, from reading what Luke says that Jesus for at least a day and a half is holding court in the temple. He is teaching in the temple. And first you have the Pharisees show up. They try to, uh, to come into the temple and ask him a question as he is teaching about taxes, right? Is, is it rightful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And they think that if he answers it and says, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, then he'll lose the favor of the people because he's being being very pro-Roman, uh, or uh, he'll say something like, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, and then they can label him as an insurrectionist and hand him over to the authorities, which is what they really want to do. But instead, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God's what is God's, and that silences the Pharisees, and it causes all the people listening to marvel at the wisdom of Jesus. Then you have the Sadducees. They come along. They hit Jesus with a question. And they ask him a question about marriage and resurrection. Their desire is to make him look like a theological novice so that people would then lose interest in his teaching and they would uh, leave him alone. He would no longer have an audience. He would leave the temple. And they want that to happen because they have some very lucrative businesses there in the temple that they want to get up and running again. Jesus coming in and turning the tables over and stopping the parade of cattle, that's hurt their pockets. So they want their pockets to be straight. Therefore, they got to make sure to shut Jesus down. But their attempts to make him look like some sort of uh, newbie to the, the theological block. Uh, it, it fails. His wisdom confounds them as well. And he answers so well that even the scribes who were just trying to trap Jesus themselves, even they applaud his answer. And they're like, yeah, that, that was a good answer. And then in Luke 20, verse 40, uh, Luke says, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. So they realize, like, you know, we're not going to get this guy. We're, we're not going to trap this guy. There's nothing we're going to come up with here that is going to uh, catch him off guard, that he's not going to have an answer to. We end up looking like fools every time we try to make him look like a fool, so we'll just be quiet. No more questions. 
Well, while they might be done with questions, Jesus is not. Jesus has not decided that it's time for no more questions. He's got a question for them. In fact, he's got two questions for them that really, really boil down to one question. And if they can answer rightly, then what's going to happen is they're going to end up at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is going to ask a question this morning of these men who are listening to him. Um, it, it's a question that demands for them uh, to look at Jesus and say, hey, you're the answer. Either they don't know the answer or they'll say Jesus is the answer. And if Jesus is the answer, their response should be to fall down at his feet and worship. Jesus' question demands an answer that reveals his own brilliance and his own glory. So uh, I'm going to start reading in uh, chapter 20, verse 39, just for the sake of context, and we'll go through verse 44 this morning. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for everything that has happened in the service, God. The, 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 uh, the glory of celebrating new life through baptism, uh, getting to... Um, adore you and praise you and worship you, getting to confess our sins with confidence that you'll forgive us, Lord, uh, hearing the women of our church sing praises to you. Uh, what a day this has been, Lord. Uh, and now um, the best way to follow up all of that is to learn and to grow in your word. So, uh, Lord, afford that to us. We can't do it on our own. We need you to show us what the text means. We need your spirit, God, to be helping us uh, where we are weak in our intellect. We need your spirit to be strengthening us, uh, God, so that we would have a sharp mind to be able to understand your word and then apply it, God. Apply it to our hearts and to see life transformation um, from, from this time in, in the word together. So I pray for that fruit, God, and I pray that you would keep the enemy out of it. And I pray that a love for the world or a love for comfort would not choke out uh, the life of the word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has questions for his opponents. You see a question in verse 41. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? And then you see a question in verse 44. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? It's really the same question, right? It's really the same question. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the question comes from Psalm 110, verse 1. And in Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus comments on that verse and says, How is it that David uh, calls someone who is his son, his Lord? Now, Psalm 110, verse 1 is a bit jarring if you were to read it in the Hebrew uh, because of the words that are used. And you can miss it in the English if you're not careful, but it's there. It's there. So if you actually go to Psalm 110, verse 1, and don't just read the quotation in uh, Luke, but you actually go to that verse, what you'll see there is that there's two lords in the verse. One of the lords is going to have a capital L and then a smaller but still capital O-R-D. So all caps L-O-R-D, Lord. This lord is Yahweh. 
And Yahweh is God's covenant name that his people know him by. This name comes from the Hebrew word for I am. And we're introduced to it in Exodus 3 when Moses speaks with God at the burning bush. And Moses says, listen, i got to go back and tell these people who's talking to me. I can't just go back saying all these things. I need a name. And so God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say, to, uh, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so I am translates to uh, Yahweh. And Yahweh was the name that Israel was to know their God by. God had made a covenant with Israel. They were his people. He is their God. And they showed that they are his people. And they showed that he is their God when they addressed him as Yahweh. So whenever you're reading your English Bible and you see in the Old Testament, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that is Yahweh in the Hebrew. But there's another Lord there in Psalm 110 verse 1, and it's not all capitals. You get the capital L, right, the big L, but then you have lowercase O-R-D. This is the chief title of God in the Old Testament, and it translates from the Hebrew title Adonai. Adonai also means Lord, and it refers to the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the total majestic control that God has over all of creation, the divine right that God has to his throne, which is above all other thrones. And there's only one Adonai because there's only one who has that sort of power and has that sort of position. So the conundrum of Psalm 110 verse 1 is you have Yahweh speaking to Adonai. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense on the surface. It's a conversation between God and someone else, and yet the someone else seems to have this title, Adonai, that is reserved for God alone. What is going on here? Who is he talking to? Could there be someone else worthy of the title Adonai? It's not the only time you see the names of God next to each other like this. You see it in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. But that's more straightforward than Psalm 110 because what David has done in Psalm 8 is simply taken the covenant name of God, Yahweh, and the chief title of God, Adonai, and set them next to each other. That's not weird, right? That, that, that does not present uh, a quandary for us. Uh, they're just set next to each other. But in Psalm 110 verse 1, the names aren't just next to each other. Yahweh is holding a conversation with someone else who holds the title, Adonai. Now, before we get back to Jesus' question, before we're able to answer Jesus' question, there's something else we have to touch on. In verse 41 and in verse 44, it's this idea that David is talking to someone who is his son. And so if we go to 2 Samuel 7, there's a prophecy there that Nathan spoke over David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. So there's a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that God gives to David. He's going to make his name great. Same promise he gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. 2 Samuel 7 verse 10. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So God is going to give Israel land, and he is going to give Israel rest from their enemies. And then he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so here, what's being promised to David, and this is where it's starting to really get interesting for our purposes, is that from his line, there is going to be a king who will sit on his throne forever. And his dynasty will last forever. Not just in this age, but also in the age to come. And then in 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, um, the Lord says through Nathan, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So this king that comes from David's line, that sits on David's throne forever, this king will be like a son to God. So you take all this and put it together. Psalm 110, verse 1, you've got Yahweh speaking to someone who has the title Adonai, someone that is David's son, and yet David is calling him Lord. You put all of this together, and what you have is an interpretive challenge where you're trying to put the pieces together and figure it out. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's basically saying to these men, you are the leaders of Israel. You're the chief teachers. Sadducees, you guys, um, you, you say that you have a grip on God's word better than anybody. In fact, you're so discerning about it, you've ruled out pretty much all of the Old Testament except the first five books. Pharisees, you run the synagogues. The people look to you as their main teachers. You guys are the ones that run the show, so interpret the scriptures. That's what he's doing. You guys are the ones who are supposed to have all the answers. Well, what's the answer? Interpret the scriptures. We have an interpretive challenge here in Psalm 110. So tell me what it means. If they were not ignorant, if they were not blind, if they were not too obsessed with their own agenda, their own interpretation, their own man-made tradition, then what they would understand is that the Messiah is standing right in front of them. Who else but the Messiah could receive the name Adonai from God the Father? Who else but the Messiah would be given the chief title of God by Yahweh himself? This Messiah is also supposed to be David's son. So how can David write in Psalm 110 and call his own son Lord? How can he call his own son Adonai? And so that's the question Jesus is laying before them. Interpret the scriptures. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son Now, we know from studying Luke's gospel over the last couple of years exactly who the Messiah is. We know it's Jesus. We know he's the promised king who will sit on David's throne forever. We know it from chapter 1 when the angel spoke to Mary and said, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. We know it from Zechariah's prophecy in Luke 1. 
when it talks about how God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. We know it from Luke's words about the family of Jesus in Luke 2, when the Bible says that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. We know it from the cries of the blind beggar even in Luke 18, when he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who, were in front of, uh, those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David. But how can he be David's son and David's Lord? That's the question he's placed before the leaders. Their silence shows they, they don't understand the Scriptures. And their silence shows they don't understand the Messiah. And they don't understand God's plan of salvation. And more than anything, they don't understand the Incarnation. Now, we can be a little bit more lenient with them on this because in truth, the disciples really didn't understand the Incarnation until Jesus had ascended into heaven and then they looked back and they went, oh, okay, now we get it, right? But these guys aren't even in the ballpark. They're not even close. They are trying to arrest, to arrest and kill the Messiah. The disciples aren't trying to do that. They're seeking to follow him, and they want to understand and learn and worship. They're not trying to kill him, but that's what these guys are trying to do, and they're supposed to be the leaders of the nation. The only way that David's son can also be his Lord is if David's son is God in the flesh. They didn't get it. The only way David's son can take on the chief name of God is if he's worthy of it. And the only way he can be worthy of it is if he is Adonai is if he is actually God himself. The identity of Jesus as God's son has also been really clear in Luke. Again, the angel talking to Mary in Luke 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus' genealogy ends like this, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Even as the, the devil is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, his sonship is on display. Luke 4, verse 3, the devil said to, the, to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. You see it in how the demons spoke of him. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. We'll even see it as he stands before the council of ruling elders on trial in Luke 22. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Luke's gospel makes it clear to us. Jesus is the son of David from the house and lineage of David. And Jesus is the son of God. And God the Father sent God the Son to earth on a soul-saving mission. To seek and to save the lost. Here's how the 1689 London Baptist Confession speaks on this, which the reason I bring that confession up is it's such a cornerstone confession for us as Baptists. So here's them talking about God the Father sending God the Son. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities, 
thereof yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. It's a lot of words. But what those words tell us is that the Son of God is equal to the Father, that He is not the B version of God, but He is the very eternal God that we read about in the Scriptures in the flesh, the one who governs the world, the one who sustains the world and upholds the world. He came to earth in the flesh, in the fullness of time, took upon himself man's nature with all the properties and common infirmities that you and I have except for one big one, and that's sin. He was without sin because he was conceived by the Spirit in Mary's womb. When the Spirit came down upon her. When the power of the Most High overshadowed her. And he came to earth and he lived a perfect life as the seed of Abraham and the seed of David. And he never sinned in his thoughts or his actions. Never sinned in his attitude. Everything that he did was righteous and came from a place of pure holiness. And yet, his life ends with him dying in the place of sinners like me and you. His life ends with him being massacred on the cross, and it should have been us for the sin that we committed. He had never done one wrong thing in thought, in word, or deed, and yet he died for our thoughts and our words and our deeds and then rose from the grave to defeat death, to crush death, and to prove his identity as the the Messiah, as the son of David, as the son of Abraham, as the son of God, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. In Acts 1 verse 9, it says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight that's the event I love Paul's commentary on the event in Philippians 2 when he says therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father what is the name that God bestowed upon Jesus in Philippians 2 9 through 11. What is that name? As Jesus ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and his work as the mediator between God and man has been completed, when he takes that seat, what is this title that Paul is talking about? A lot of people think that the title is his name, Jesus. But listen, he already had that name. It's not like he got to heaven. And God said, well, listen, for the past three years, you really didn't deserve this name, but now I'm going to give it to you. He already had that name. The title that's being given to him in Philippians 2 is Adonai. It's that chief title of God that Yahweh calls the Messiah in Psalm 110, verse 1. His parents gave him the name Jesus according to the instructions from the Lord, but the Father gave him Adonai. Jesus has received the name Adonai so that when people hear the name Jesus, they go, 
That's the Lord. That's Adonai. Jesus is Adonai. And they would worship him and they would confess his lordship to the glory of God the Father. So in the incarnation that the Pharisees and the Sadducees completely did not understand, Jesus descended to earth and he lived under the authority of his Father and he carried out the Father's will perfectly and he saved the people of God through his death and through his resurrection and in the ascension he rises to to heaven to sit at the hand of his Father, the right hand of his Father, and he bears the title of Adonai perfectly, fully deserving the praise of the people of God. Thus the Lord Yahweh says to David's Lord, Adonai, who is also David's son because he came from David's line, sit at my right hand. And Jesus sits there this morning. Adonai, my Lord, your Lord, and the Lord of the whole earth, whether they want to admit it or not. You know, as Christians, we say you can't save yourself. Right? You're born in sin, you're enslaved to that sin, you can't save yourself. Even if you try to do good works, those good works are coming from a place of sin and rebellion and pride. And so they're stained, they're polluted. And that's why we say that even the best works we have are filthy rags before God, because they are rooted in all that pride and ugliness. So what that means is there's no good you can do to atone for the sin of your soul. Any good that you offer up and try to lay on the altar, it's stained, it's polluted. You need somebody else to do it for you. Someone who is perfect. Someone who's not enslaved to sin. Who can do actual good works uh, on, on your behalf and offer them up to God. The problem is we look around us and everybody's just like us. Say, well, I can't save myself. I need somebody to save me. You look at all your fellow humans, and you're like, they're just as broken and messed up as I am. Some of them more, some of them less, but all broken. Everybody around us is struggling. Everybody's fallen. Everybody's enslaved to sin. So where is this sinless person who can atone for us? Where is our great hero? On the other hand, as Christians, we say that only God can save you. Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. So which is it? We can't save ourselves. Only God can save us. Well, of course it's not either or, it's both and, because our need for a perfect human to save us, a hero, and our only hope that God can save us, converge on the God-man, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have the Son of David and the Son of God. We have God, the only one who can save us, in the flesh, living and dying and rising as a perfect man. This is Adonai of Psalm 110, verse 1. And this is the one standing in front of the silent religious authority in this passage, but they cannot answer Jesus because they are blind to the reality that the answer is right before them. Today, of course, is Father's Day. I'm a dad three times over by the grace of God. This is my 10th Father's Day as a father. Beckett, 10. Everett, 8. Millie, 3. They have a lot of questions. Millie has a lot of answers. <laughs> Boy's got a lot of questions. You know, the world shouts at me and at the rest of you dads and granddads and says, this is what you need to tell your kids. Some of the things they say that we need to tell our kids, they're not bad things. Your kids need more family. Amen. Uh, Your your kids need less screen time. Yep, that's probably true. Right? Your kids need to be more creative. 
Absolutely. Every generation's probably felt that about their children. So some of the things they say, your kids need this. Well, they're right. They need it, right? Um, and then some of the things they say that our kids need, like being free from uh, binary gender constructs, we say, no, they don't need that at all. Thanks, thanks, but no thanks. So the answers the world wants to give us are all over the map. Some are wrong, some are right, but they're all loud. What I want to say to you dads and granddads this morning is that while the world might have a host of really loud, good and bad things that they want to yell at you, none of the things they're yelling are what your kids need the most and what your grandkids need the most. What your son, what your daughter, what your grandson or your granddaughter needs to hear from you is that the only hope for their soul is found in the God-man Jesus Christ. That's what they need to hear from you. Let's blow it up bigger than Father's Day. Surely some of you this morning, it's, you know, the last couple years, it's like death has kind of been on our TV screens a lot. It gets put in front of us a lot. And so I would imagine that during COVID, a lot of you might have started to contemplate your mortality a little bit, started to realize, like, you know what? It may not be this thing that gets me, but one of these days, unless the Lord returns, if he tarries, I'm going to die. Maybe you start to think about life. What's it all about? Is there a bigger purpose? Is there meaning? And again, the world's there to say, read this, buy this, take this, drink this, rub this on. But above and before any of that, what you need this morning is found in Adonai, the Lord who sits at the right hand of Yahweh. And I know that preachers say stuff like that all the time. It's not like this morning you're like, boy, this sermon took a turn I didn't see coming, right? Preachers say stuff like this all the time, but just let me make a case theologically of why we say things like this. Consider this. We think about eternity and what's to come. Let's go backwards and what's been. Before any of this existed, Jesus was in a loving, perfect relationship with his Father. In eternity past, before creation, Jesus has always been in a loving relationship with the Father, a perfect relationship, a relationship of co-equals that is completely and totally saturated with love and with peace and with fellowship. When people are struggling, uh, a lot of times as their pastor, what I will pray over you is that God would give you the very peace that has existed for all of eternity in the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that he would give you that peace in your hearts when you're going through things. That's a prayer that I pray often. And so Jesus has always been in this perfect relationship with the Father. When he comes to earth, that relationship doesn't end because he wasn't sinful. And what that means is that Jesus is the first and only human since Adam's fall in the garden to have a perfect relationship with the Father. Think about that. So hold that in one hand. Jesus is the only person to have a perfect relationship with God the Father. Hold on to that. And then in this other hand, let's put another truth in that one. Because as we talk about the divinity of Christ, Him being God in the flesh, then we would have to say He has the power to give life. And this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam is created and given life in the garden. The last Adam, Jesus, is not created. He is not given life. He gives life. So we hold that truth in the other hand, that Jesus is the only one who has the power to give life. Take these two and put them together. Here's what you have. 
As the God-man, the Son of God and the Son of David, Jesus is totally unique because who else can claim to have a perfect relationship with the Father and yet also have the ability to give life? Of course, there's no one. No one can make this claim, but Jesus, not only does he make this claim, he has every right to make the claim because he is the only one. Perfect relationship with his Father has the power to give life. In Titus 3, Paul writes and says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, listen to this, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So in verse 7 there, there's a twofold hope. Justification, being made right with God, having your sin atoned for, and eternal life. Only Jesus can offer these things. As the perfect man, he's qualified to die in your place, atone for your sin, so you would be justified and made righteous in the eyes of God. And as God in the flesh, he has the divine power to give eternal life. Who else can do these things? No one. So yeah, dad, before your kids need you to show them how to shoot a basketball or throw a spiral, they need you to tell them this. That hope is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Before they need you to put them on the perfect travel team and make sure they're at all the games and they're doing everything they can to become a pro one day. Listen, they need this. They need this. Before, they need to know how to cut the grass or be strong in the face of adversity or how to do long division. They need this. Are you pointing them to the one who can atone for their sin and give them life? Because I'm going to tell you, the world's pointing and they're listening. And so we better give them the right answers. And we better give them the right direction. They need you to answer Jesus' question and explain who it is that Yahweh has given the name Adonai to. They need you to explain to them how David's son is also his Lord and how David's son must be their Lord as well. And brothers and sisters, when we take our message to the world, they don't need our opinions, they don't need our complaints, they need our Christ. They need to know that Jesus has been given the name Adonai. And they need to know that they're going to confess him as Adonai. Either they do what Matt talked about earlier when he was in the baptismal pool. They do it now. They realize life is empty uh, without Christ now. They repent of their sin. They put their trust in Christ. They surrender to him as Lord, as Adonai now. Or they will do it later in judgment. So they need to know. Can you answer Jesus' question? And are you ready to help others answer it? as well, starting with the little ones who might be running around in your home. Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we are not worthy of the greatness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are not worthy. And yet, He makes us worthy to be able to come to Him. And so, everything that we lack... 
to be able to approach your throne and to be able to worship you through your son Jesus. By your grace you give us. Through the cross, Lord, all of our sins have been paid for. Every bit of dirt that we have done in the name of our own comfort, our own convenience, our own desires, our own pleasure, your son has suffered and died for. And in the resurrection, Lord, we get total and absolute victory over sin and over death. And so, Lord, I pray, uh, first of all, for the people of our church that we would be worshipers of you, Jesus, because you deserve it. As we've just talked about, you're unique. You stand alone. You're the only one who can be given the title of Adonai. No one else deserves it. So let us treat no one else or anything else like they are Lord. May we bow down to you and you alone and adore you and you alone. And Father, for, for dads and granddads in the room, great-granddads in the room, men who aspire to become fathers, Lord, I pray that you would write this message on our hearts. I pray that, um, that we would be able to answer questions like this. That the interpretive questions of our children and our grandchildren would not be met with silence, but would be met with biblical answers. That we can point them to you because the world's trying to point them everywhere else. So, Father, I pray we would take up our duty as men of God and we would do this work of raising our children in your discipline and your instruction to know the most important answers and to know who you are, Jesus. And, Lord, I pray this is the message that as your workmanship our church would take to the world and you would empower us to do it by your Spirit. And we will tell the world who the Son of God is, who the Son of David is, and that the hope for their soul, the only hope for their soul is found in him. I guess in the end, Lord, what I'm praying is that we would be a church that clings to the gospel. And that it motivates us to worship, to teach the next generation, and to preach to this lost and dying world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and